0: One of my favorite quotes comes from Robert Heilbroner on Thorstein Veblen, and he says, It's the fate of critics, above all those who aim their critique at the preconceptions rather than the conclusions of a discipline, to suffer from its studied indifference. I was seeing a post getting shared around on Facebook um, from a news site about um, a man that broke into a home uh, and held the, the homeowners at gunpoint until the homeowners took the gun away from him, beat him, and then waited for the police to arrive. And in the, at the end of the post from the news outlet, it said, do you support how the homeowners defended themselves? And this kind of epitomizes the terrible questions that often get asked in the news, in the media, and on social media. Because depending on your perspective or your outlook or the assumptions that you approach the question with, your answers to the question change completely. Do I support the beating of another human being? No. Do I support the right to self-defense when your life is threatened? Yes. So as is often the case in polling, the question is far more important than the answer. And depending on how you craft the question, you can design the answer. And in this case, the content of the answer to the question actually says less than what can be implied by the assumptions that the question was approached with. So if someone answered, yes, I support that, then you could evaluate whether or not it's true that they believe that the right to defend your home or the, or the right to self-defense uh, can come at the expense of being another human being, arguably unnecessarily. You could argue in court that Once they had the gun, they could merely hold him at gunpoint and wait for police, that it was unnecessary brutality or whether or not, legally speaking, that the heat of the moment justified certain actions based on fear or um, things like that. And so legally, there's a whole issue that you could work out there. But if you answer the question, yes, self-defense is important, then you're arguing that in that case, maybe the additional brutality was justified. If you answer no, then you're saying that the additional brutality was not justified or that the right to life of the homeowners was did not outweigh the right of the person breaking into their home. Or are you? And so the, the problem is, is that the answers to these questions really don't answer the questions. They just raise a lot more questions about the implications and the assumptions of the person answering the question. But an even bigger question is... Why do they need my support? My support or non-support of the actions they took in that situation are fundamentally irrelevant to the moral and or legal justifications. What may be a more pertinent or relevant question is, would you have done the same in the same situation? Or to simply make the question more specific, where is certain... Uh, excess brutality justified in the heat of the moment or is it not or is there a fine or is there jailed all those things asking those questions can actually go somewhere asking this question merely raises more questions now the subtleties in that whole question and answer process in which is actually bearing more weight in the conversation the question or the answer is actually extended um by the next topic. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a pretty good series. It's on Netflix. It's called Abstract. And they have a bunch of different designers and artists talk about their craft. And one of the things that Ilsa Crawford said was really interesting to me. You know, she's a a home designer and she merely pointed out that rough feels rougher in contrast to smooth. And this is something also that you hear chefs and other artists talk about is the importance of contrast, whether or not, you know, hot and cold you know, crunchy and soft and these things that you can use and that by creating contrast, you're actually uh, enhancing and bringing out the experience. And the same goes for an image. All, all light is simply pure white and all darkness is pure black. There is no perceivable information from either other than white and black light and darkness. But when you mix the two together, you can create patterns of contrast that actually reveal information. So in an image, the contrast is effectively what it is that you're seeing. Now, this is not to say that a, that an object or an entity or a concept is defined by its opposite, but merely that it is more clearly revealed to us by its opposite. So, rough doesn't become not rough because smooth does not exist. But you can understand what rough is because you know what smooth is. But is rough actually rougher in contrast to smooth as in to say objectively did that object become rougher merely because you were also in a short time frame experiencing the opposite and the answer of course is no the objective reality of that didn't change what changed was how close opposite experiences were brought together that created a clarity that this is smooth, that this is rough, this is crunchy, this is soft, this is light, this is dark. It's actually bringing those experiences together that creates clarity, but it doesn't actually change the objective values of those experiences. And so the question becomes, how rough is it actually? How smooth is it actually objectively? Merely because something seems one way or another because of the proximity of the experiences doesn't actually change the objectivity of what it is you're experiencing. And so what that brings to mind is our dependence on contrast actually reveals the irrevocable subjectivity of what we perceive. That because one thing can seem more one way versus the other merely by pairing it with its opposite that we become more aware of what those things may be objectively or not. But that subjectivity is completely present and totally unavoidable. And just, just like with asking questions, that depending on the question you ask, you're actually in many ways crafting the answer. And in the same way, what we often experience and perceive and observe may not actually be what we experience perceive and observe it may not be objective reality it is merely our perception's construction of what of our experience and all of this ties in really well to the final topic which is a question that was sent in by someone who preferred to remain anonymous which is simply do we change what it is we're observing by observing it in physics this is known as the observer effect And the foundation of the observer effect comes from quantum physics and in the measurement of electrons. What scientists have discovered so far is that electrons can behave both as a particle and as a wave. And when it behaves as a wave, it can actually pass through multiple barriers at the same time while remaining the same electron, the same entity. However, they discovered that when they used their tools to observe the electron, that it behaved as a particle and so concluded that the actual observation of the electron changed the behavior of the electron, which means that the observation of the object affected the object and actually therefore distorted our observation of it. And in the studies, they also discovered that as the level of observation increased, so did the effect on the object being observed. Now, this idea in quantum physics has been uh, reappropriated in very Oprah-esque ways to say that you know your belief can create reality, um, which really is just looking at it in the way it actually lines up with the theory is effective to saying that if we measure hard enough, that will be the reality of the object. And so in terms of the actual physics of the idea, it's totally absurd. Even Wikipedia says most physicists disagree with that application of the idea. Now, by the nature of its existence, it's impossible to ever claim that you've eliminated the observer effect because In many ways it's difficult if not impossible to actually measure what the observer effect is if we could measure the observer effect the observer effect wouldn't exist and so this really points out a limitation in science itself science relies on observable reality to draw conclusions and and create consistent models and it's really fantastic at that but when you start to get at these quantum levels and understand that the actual act of science itself is manipulating the matter that we are attempting to observe. It points to the existence of truths and realities that are unobservable. What's really fascinating about this as well is that effectively what the scientists were looking for when analyzing electrons in this way is they're trying to observe the noise. The, they describe the waves in the electrons as interference and that as observation increased, interference decreased, but what they're trying to observe was the interference. But the tools are designed to eliminate interference in most cases. Interference is the thing you're trying not to pay attention to. But in this case and in other cases, we're trying to actually learn from the interference. The questions we ask ourselves bias towards an answer. Are you looking for the signal or the noise? Are you trying to learn from the interference or from the object itself? And is your observation actually changing or affecting the reality that you're trying to observe and learn from? Thanks for watching this video, I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts, questions or comments for me, you can go to overthinker.show and leave me a note or you can email me using bin at overthinker.show. I'll see you next Friday.